<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This episode of Postmortem is sponsored by RLJE Films. Holly must find a way to escape her dreams in the visually stunning housewife from the very talented Turkish director of Baskin, Jan Efrenal. And from the creators of Final Destination, find out what's looming in your darkest nightmares in Sleep No More. Housewife and Sleep No More are both available on DVD, VOD, and digital October 2nd. Pre-order them today on Amazon.com. I'm Mick Garris, and this is the Postmortem Podcast. Let's talk about adaptation, not the brilliant screenplay by Charlie Kaufman about the process of turning the written word into moving pictures, brightly directed by Spike Jones. No, let's talk about the process itself. As a writer and director, I've adapted many literary works by Stephen King, Clive Barker, and many other authors into film and television adaptations, and it's always a tightrope walk. The challenge, of course, is to take something that already exists, to take all of its most fascinating elements, and turn it into something that lives and breathes and takes on a life of its own. The reader is an active audience. He or she picks up a book, turns the pages at a personal pace, fills in the images with his or her own imagination, and is an actual participant in the telling of the story. The filmmakers have to choose a vision to present to a vast audience, a vision that will come to represent the story in visual terms, characters represented by actors, choosing the best route to turn a reading experience into a watching experience. And on top of that, it's not just the writer and director making all the choices. In the world of film, it really does take a village. If you're lucky, you're working from material that is cinematic in its literary form, as with Stephen King. But sometimes, all you can really do is take a theme and a plot, as literary storytelling can be much less linear than a movie needs to be. And inevitably, material has to be cut. Equally inevitably, what you cut is going to be some reader's favorite scene. Hence, the constant refrain, it's not as good as the book. As Richard Matheson told me, books are internal and film is external. An author can delve into the deepest of thoughts and philosophical matters as he composes his musings. In film, character and storytelling are done from the outside in. Often, narration takes the place of inner musings in film. Equally often, it's a cheap shortcut. Today, we have two guests to discuss that process. Joe Lansdale is an author with a tremendously original voice, hard-boiled yet sensitive, boldly imaginative but earthbound, salty and Texan, and with an outrageous sense of humor recognizable from the first sentence. Don Coscarelli, whom we've been lucky to have on the show before, is most famous for his phantasm movies and is a filmmaker with as unique a vision as Lansdale on film. Fifteen years ago, they collaborated on something remarkable and amazing, a movie unlike any other, and we are here to celebrate it. We'll light the birthday candles to the remarkable Bubba Hotep after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally. 
to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. All right, guys, let's talk about the beginning of this collaboration. How did you two first meet? I'll take that. I uh, used to go uh, book shopping at a store called Dangerous Visions in Sherman Oaks. Very well known. Named long, after a Harlan Ellison collection. Yeah, yeah. not uh, long since gone, unfortunately. Yeah. And they had a lot of cool stuff. And I used to just uh, browse the shelves and try to find something that, you know, looking for something maybe that would spark my fancy to make a movie. And I went up to the uh, guy who ran the place and I said, uh, so what's new and cutting edge in horror? And he said, uh, follow me. And he <laughs> took me over to the L aisle and he goes, Joe Lansdale. He always has a high body count, <laughs> which I later found to not be so true, yeah, but yeah. Uh, it intrigued me, and I grabbed a couple of books. I think it was The Night Runners and The Drive-In. Mm -hmm. Went home, and uh, luckily a friend of mine, uh, Jeff Connor, had this uh, business called Scream Press. He was in the... Uh, uh, publishing world and somehow dug up a phone number for Joe. I think that was maybe before email. Yeah, it and, was definitely yeah. before email. So I called him up. We started talking. I tried to I, – I loved reading The Drive-In and Nightrunners. Yes. Great books. I thought maybe one of them would make for a great movie, especially The Drive-In. And I called Joe, and The Drive-In, I think, had just been optioned. But um, – he invited Daniel West may have come up too. I don't remember. Yeah, I'm later. not sure I'd seen that yeah, one yet. Later. But uh, but Joe invited me to come down to Texas and visit. So I went down in for the weekend yeah. in Nacogdoches. Yeah. Yes, and it came for a long weekend. weekend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was really nice. Yeah, we had we had a lot of fun and we talked about stuff, but we we couldn't really get anything going then because, like, as he said, the drive-in was was option, and I probably didn't have as much material. As that, and then along came a little time after Don had left, and you know we hit it off immediately. We you know we were friends immediately. When he called me on the phone, this is Don Coscarelli, and I think you tried to explain who you were. And I said, I know who you are. <laughs> I said, Phantasm. Uh, but he he came and uh, we talked, and then when he left, a little while later he came across uh, Bubba Hotep, and he called me. I said, Don, you can't film Bubba Hotep. <laughs> that won't film. And he said, no, nah, he was pretty persistent. I said, man, I don't want to take your money for that. I won't film. But he made a deal with my, my agent. And I think a year passed, nothing happened, and I think you renewed it. And I think I, I said, okay, if you were foolish enough to get it the first time, you you can go ahead the second time. I said, it's not going to happen. And he asked me to do the screenplay, and I thought, Mm, that's a hard one to do, and I probably wanted more money just because. <laughs> yeah. But 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 it it was a hard one to do. It was a real reason. I said I don't think it can be done. So then he sends me a screenplay, and I read. It, and I said I'll be damned. It can be done. And Don, you adapted it yourself. Mm. Yeah, he, he did. did. You know, hey, and hey. Uh, you know. By the way, Mick, just as a you know, for aspiring filmmakers, I never intended to be a writer by any means. I wanted to make a movie maker, <laughs> right? And uh, frequently, though, in the low budget world, you you know you you. you you know, writing Jack is a part trades. of it. Yeah, yeah, you have to do all of it is what it's about. The more but, you know about but, every but part of it. before we go film. further, we've got to talk about that first meeting down in Nacogdoches because Joe invited me kindly. And I he had this office downstairs with a, a bed down there. And he told me about all the luminaries who had slept in that bed. <laughs> like David Scow had yeah. just Mad been there, Richard I think. Christian and Yeah, Mathis. Richard Christian Matheson, a uh, great writer. Uh, a lot of editors, a lot yeah, of different people. Yeah, yeah. All of our buddies. Yeah. 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 And 
then of course there was the the creek bed next door and he says yeah watch out for the water moccasins that come out at night <laughs> and so every night I'm just you know inspiration was, slithered by it was dis- it was uh, not connected to the house you had to go outside to go around to go up, yeah. up the stairs to the uh, yeah. to the rest of the house you know yeah. but you know you said something in your introduction and and I'm always a little bit bitchy about this mm-hmm. and of course it depends you know is is talking about adaptations the best and most literal adaptation I've ever had, Don did it. Yeah. If you see that movie, it's 90%, maybe even higher than that. Uh, and what he did, he did another thing, and I really appreciated this, is that he took some of the, I guess you would call the prose, and turned it into dialogue. Yes. That, one of the things I was going to say is how very faithful to the language the movie is and well, people Nick, say that's the genius of of joe is his use of language is so amazing and i don't know that uh, anyone can write like him and to just you know when you're adapting a screenplay you know all you can really use is the dialogue and then the settings and the scenario you know the scenario and plot but all of the description, you know, the third-person description usually just has to be jettisoned. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I wish I, I could say that I knew exactly what I was doing because mm-hmm. when I first started, I had a narrator. And I took all that yeah, stuff I and that. I'd have a narrator. And you I actually had me narrate a little I, yeah, piece. I had a the, section, yeah, to yeah, do a test well, for that. I and that. Uh, I, and then the, th- the problem was, though, is that George, uh, Joe's story had the construct in there of – having Elvis do narration. So then you had your, you know, your what you're looking at, then you've got Elvis's narration, and then layered on top of it was an, a third-party narrator. And Okay, uh, as we get deeper into this, for anybody who has not read the, the novella or seen the film, Joe, maybe you ought to give a rundown of what the plot is. Well, yeah, the plot is really pretty simple. I think it it's is the, simple. I but... think it's the characters and the way they interact. The idea was, and this was kind of a thing then, you'd see it in the magazines all the time, Elvis didn't die. He's out there. He's living in Las Vegas, you know, or, and he's as a truck driver or whatever. I mean, the story was always variable, you know, but he was supposedly alive. And uh, that was the big... Uh, big takeaway from so many of those little cheap magazines and mm-hmm. papers that came out. And also, when I was growing up, I, of course, you know, we, we knew about the Kennedy assassination. We were, you know, I was a kid then, I probably 11 or something, mm-hmm. I don't remember. But uh, that had a big impact. And uh, so the idea of John F. Kennedy and Elvis were in my mind because my my brother actually lived in Memphis and tried to record at Sun Records. Wow. And his wife that he met there had gone to school with Elvis. They graduated from Hume High right. at the same time. Oh, so amazing. there was that little connection. And, and he, of course, had met and, and knew Elvis in passing. Right. You know, before he was really the big guy. The king, yeah. So those things came together. My mother had had an accident. She had to be in a rest home for a while mm-hmm. because she had to have around the clock. So, I, you know, I spent a lot of time there. So all of those three things, I think, were marinating. And, and I'd once made up a title as a joke called Bubba Hotep. Mm-hmm. I, I said that would be the redneck version of an Egyptian uh, mummy film. And I'd always loved those mummy films, all those universal films when I was little. And, uh, and then when... Um, I was asked to do it. Uh, I'm I want to say it's Paul Salmon that was the editor. I, I'm yeah, I think if I remember yeah, right. I think you're and right. And it was originally called Elvis is Dead. Maybe that's what it eventually became. Elvis mm-hmm. is Dead. But 
I wrote the story and all of those factors came together. And there was also the fact that when you're, you know, you see visiting people in the old folks home, as they used to call it in, in right. Texas, is not only that she was there for medical reasons, you know, that she she was aging and you're seeing people that were even older than that and though i was not a, a an older man then you know as i as i am now <laughs> but but i think that it affected me uh about how people deal with age and that the fact is no matter what you do in life no matter how famous you are how rich you are if you get old mm-hmm. if you don't get old you're dead before then and then right. it's like you if know, you're lucky you it, it was the idea the theme of that, what you know, what does it really matter you know, you know how much sex you've had, how much money you've had, et cetera, et cetera. If in the end, what's it worth? Yeah. And so I, you know, I kind of got this thematic idea that it's not about where you end up; it's where you go as you travel. Hmm. It's the traveling that counts. Cause we're all going to end up in the same place. Yes. You know, same box. Same yep. box. Ooh, so, well, for the uninitiated, Bubba Hotep is about Elvis Presley actually still being alive and living in an old folks home in texas and i didn't i didn't finish did i yes (laughs) and a an elderly black gentleman who believes he's john f kennedy Mm -hmm. who is still alive and his brain has been replaced by sand by the government and and the actual brain is in a uh, the white house powered by battery (laughs) and he gets vibes from that and i forgot to mention too that there's a a mummy yeah there's a mummy yeah there's a passing circus with a mummy that uh, crashes off a bridge common's little brother or something and and comes to life so so when we're talking about a joe lansdale horror story joe lansdale meets don coscarelli becomes quite a potent mix because both of you have very distinctive voices and it's something that all creative artists aspire to well mick i'd like to just interrupt for a second and say that bubba hotep really came about because joe has this fearless writing style that (laughs) where other writers won't tread and he in the eighties, it was called splatterpunk. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he, which is for me was ridiculous. That yeah, Joe yeah. at one time was one of the splatterpunk yes, guys, exactly. But no, what Joe's genius and what I don't think any of the splatterpunk other splatterpunkers did is that he has an ability or a a desire to mash up genres, and he take something that you've seen you know a million times before and some other genres and then he fuses them and then mixes in a few other things and makes something that's just completely unique well you know i think don and i both like the idea of it being something poignant and yes. having some purpose and we we thought about these guys and i don't remember i think Don or Bruce, I remember who who said this, but it was the idea of how you really wanted to see them end up. That heroic moment, instead of being shot in the back of a limousine or dying on the toilet, straining at stool. (laughs) So you wanted something a little more than that, you know. And But yet we also wanted to capture all of the genre vibes and things that we're interested in. And, um, I mean, I love Don's work. But for me, I always felt that Bubba was everything that Don did brilliantly. Yeah. And I think it's uh, – and not just because it's my work, but because 
he did such a wonderful job. And, you know, when you're doing these kind of movies, Don's pretty much everything on him. You know, producer, director. He did everything but act in it, mm-hmm. you know. And he may have done that. And I, no, he might have been yeah. the mummy. For all yeah, I he know, was. You know? yeah. No, I couldn't fit into that costume. Yeah, yeah. You have to be pretty thin. That was Bob. <laughs> yeah, the was. funny thing is, it's a mummy story, and the mummy is the least important part exactly. of this well, story. It's representational true, of, yeah. uh, you know, that idea of growing old and death and, yeah. and all know, that. I think when reading the short story originally, it, it brought – imagery and feelings into my mind about Elvis. I, you know, I was not really an, an Elvis fan, no. but I knew about him. And there were certain aspects of Elvis that we all sort of know about. Right. Like he loved his mother. Yeah. He, he was very respectful. He'd always say, sir, you know, he was polite. Uh, and there were heroic, inherent, intrinsic, intrinsic, heroic elements to Elvis and the the Elvis legend, especially also with the karate, with the jumpsuits. He was modeled after Shazam, by the way. Of course, because he was so popular with that. that He he started dressing in these jumpsuits in a way to almost poke fun at himself. But it kind of wasn't because he had this ability to, you know... Make with the curly lip smile, yeah, as Joe yeah, used yeah, to say, yeah, and get anything yeah. he wanted. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, he also wanted to be an uh, undercover operative for President oh, Nixon. Of course, in yes. the, in the, in the, and he played heroes yeah. in movies. Yes, he, he most is. of the movies he did were, you know, well, I'd say about ninety nine point nine were yeah. very good. But, but he had chops. But he never got to use them right. by his own fault, by his manager's fault. What doesn't matter. But the thing was, he played heroes in those movies. Yep. And, and, and of course, then Joe had it all in there where in the story where Elvis, you know, he, Elvis says, you know, what he always wanted to be a hero. Wow. Yes. And the, the movie gives Elvis and the legend and legacy of Elvis and all the Elvis fans out there this moment. And as Joe used to describe it, it's like. Ride the high country with a walker yeah. and a wheelchair. Yeah, that's right. That's these, right. These so dudes, you have President Kennedy and yeah. Elvis Presley, the two most iconic heroes of the. Don't 1960s. forget the Lone Ranger was oh, in there yeah, too. Right. Oh yeah, the And they all died with their boots on. You know, yes, it's yeah. uh, so it had these American hero. So it's about heroism, absolutely. And, 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 you know, the, the end that, of life. The guy yes. that played Kimasabi was probably in better shape than all of us. That's, that is <laughs> he was true. an older guy. And he yeah. looked like Tarzan. You know, they had to had to. Kind yeah. of work to make him look old. Larry yeah. Pinnell was yeah. his name. Yeah. Great actor. Yeah. Um, so what was it about the story when you first read it that made right. you think, I want okay. to make this? Well, first off, it wasn't even the story. It was the log line in the book, Dust Jacket, where it just says, Elvis battles 4,000-year-old mummy. And it was just like, oh, shit, that's a movie right <laughs> that there. That is the weirdest log line for this story. Yes, yeah. it's kind of the log line, but it's such a minuscule part of what but, this story but is But about. just that that little yeah. nugget alone like really intrigued me. But I'll tell you what the closer was for me is um, there's just a wonderful moment in the book in the book, in the novella, and I think in the movie, where as JFK dies mm-hmm. and Elvis salutes him as Mr. President. And when I read that story, you know, I got a little tear in my eye and I was thinking, yeah. geez, what's going on here? Yeah. You know, and it was, it, well, you know, another thing that, that I was glad Don did and I was afraid that we wouldn't be able to do it because we discussed it and he wasn't sure was having the hieroglyphics come out of his mouth and present themselves right. on the screen because yeah. in the story when he speaks the hieroglyphics are there and a very fine artist friend of mine Mark Nelson had created those hieroglyphics based mm-hmm. on the Egyptian Book of the Dead and so I, I thought 
I think he maybe spoke two or three times in the story. I think he did twice in the film. I don't remember. But I was really thinking, gosh, we don't have that. We're going to lose this sort of thing that makes it unique, that's that's preposterous in one way. But in another way, it reaches out and touches something unexpected, and you still believe it. And Don was able to do it. And you actually did it. I mean, on a a film with a very tight budget. (laughs) Well, I I brought in some collaborators. David Hartman created that tumbling effect, and Michael Smith, a friend of his – helped with the animation of it yeah. and, you know these guys came in and did it's stuff just, for like nothing and this was back before the com- processing power in the computers was quite what it is today oh, right but right. Uh, you know at least you, they could be kind I, of cartoony and work yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know after i read um his <laughs> script don's script i i was optimistic but i wrapped i wouldn't i wasn't sold i'll be yeah. honest with you yeah. because i not because of him or anybody else just because i thought this is so difficult to bring to the screen and I, I and with that time he had not chosen an actor, you know. That's true. And uh, my son said to me, he said, "Oh, Dad, get Bruce Campbell. He's my favorite actor." I said, really? "Son, I don't have any say in this." <laughs> Don calls me the very same day. Says, "What do you think about Bruce Campbell?" <laughs> you know? And so then I got to be hero to my son. Yeah, I got that Bruce Campbell well, guy for you. <laughs> all I gotta say is Keith knows something that we don't. Because, <laughs> yes, you know there. Yes. Uh, look, and he was what ten years old at oh, the time or yeah. something. Yeah, I mean Bruce made this ter- terrific success in the Evil Dead movies and had a, a massive fan, fan, base. fan base of He's Evil Dead He's the Elvis fans. of B-movies. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he yeah. Was at that that's time. a great yeah. way to Or he was, he was moving into it. Yeah, I mean, you're it right. Was, yeah, it was, it, it, it was about to be there. growing and getting bigger. But, you know, those of us in the genre, right, we could right. start to, you know, see, see that it. kind mm-hmm. of thing. Because I, I had actually, you know, was a good six or seven years before that, I went to a Fangoria convention because um, – Reggie Bannister from Phantasm was presenting a Lifetime Achievement uh-huh. Award to Angus, and so I went to go oh, support. Yeah, right. And you know they were they did that. It was very nice and lovely. And then it finished. And then uh, Bruce Campbell was coming out to do an award, and I'd only seen the movies and I never really met him. Mm-hmm. And he he was in. I'm, I'm losing my lucidity to describe this moment. He came out, and I think there might be a video floating around on the web. He walked out and did a stunt right out of Evil Dead 2, <laughs> right in front of the crowd. He put his hand behind his head and did this complete flip, flip yeah. and hit. And he kind of ended it with a little James Brown flourish, you know, yeah. <laughs> on the ground. And it looked like it hurt, and he did it. And the audience went nuts. And I thought, oh, wow, this is a guy who loves his fans and yep. will risk his life yeah. to entertain them. He'll go anywhere. He, yeah. He's and a that, physical that comedian, stuff, really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's very sure, much. Yeah. I mean, he has a, a great physicality. It's so, sort of, you know, you know, it reminds me of Buster Keaton. Oh, yeah. In the way he yeah. moves. You know, and, very and, and, much so. Very much yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, maybe even Cary Grant had those yeah. kind of, you know, they did those kind of pratfalls. Yeah. Well, with charm, too. You know, the, know, the great thing about casting a guy like Bruce Campbell is he comes – prepared he's he's already somebody that has a history that yeah. character existed before the opening titles ran right. and he brings the good kind of baggage with him he has he's a got car- a personality he has a charisma yeah. and, a personality. Yeah. And, and he's handsome but but he's he's uniquely handsome in a way that makes him really approachable Right. You know, Absolutely. makes him like a, a regular guy, but not quite. <laughs> yeah. You know, not quite. And so when he played Elvis uh, and they he, they put the makeup on him, which which took a while. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And this was they, KMB, yes. right? Yeah, KMB. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, he was that guy. Yeah. He was that guy. Yeah. And, and I remember e- meeting Ossie Davis out there. And it was, the only, and it, you know, I'm not a starstruck kind of guy normally. And writers do it to me. 
right. stars. I'm not much moved. Mm-hmm. But Ossie Davis. My God, I, here's a guy that, because of the Civil Rights Movement, he was involved in that greatly. He gave the eulogy at Martin Luther King's funeral. Yeah, he, he, he and spoke Ruby at both. Malcolm, yeah. yes, Malcolm X. Ma- Malcolm X's. Yeah. And he... Uh, was a one of the first black producers directors yeah uh, he did he did wrote plays he wrote screenplays he did stage he did movies and so i was like in awe and when i came and he i he said hello mr Landon. <laughs> <laughs> hi how are you <laughs> well we have a little story about that because, Absolutely I, had, true because I had worked with with ossie on the stand and it was a great okay. honor and a great... Let me tell the story, because I have to uh, give you your proper accolades. Well, Mick sitting here is one of the reasons that Bubba Hotep really got made, because... That's you know, that, because the case. Getting, because no, he was sitting ser- right there. But, <laughs> but seriously, you know, Bruce was a, a magnificent uh, get for us to star in the film, but we needed the linchpin, which was somebody to bring some level of dignity to that role. And, us, yeah. You know, and, and, and tracking down uh, Ossie's agent and trying to tell, you know, one of these guys, yeah, it's about a 4,000-year-old mummy. And, and, not, it, it and we want this great actor. And, and, it and he plays John F. Kennedy. Yeah, it doesn't connect with those guys the way yeah, it does yes. with us, and especially yeah. now that we made the movie. And he passed on it. He did pass. The, yeah, the, we, the agent yeah. did. That agent passed and it was just like dead and i went back and I'm like, what the hell do i do now and uh i remembered that mick had uh, uh worked with aussie and so i called mick up and i really imposed on him i said mick i need you to write him a nice letter and tell him i'm a good guy and work and he says oh no problem don and i think that we fedex the letter because yeah. be, again before email to make sure he got it and a couple of days later ossie was in so thank you mick well. <laughs> you were an honorable bubba hotep hero well. uh, yeah you know when, when we were on the set uh and you i think you and i were i was there and i know you were too i believe yeah. they were just sitting on the bench him uh bruce and ossie and and bruce said what are you doing in this movie this is my kind of movie <laughs> and and i and ossie said i like the script yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and uh but you know what's weird is that a few some years later i had on my bubba hotep t-shirt and i was in italy um my daughter casey is a, a singer and stuff and she was performing in italy with a a, a a number of people at a film, I mean, excuse me, at a book and music festival. Mm-hmm. And so I was over there and our paths crossed. It's great, you know. That Perfect. happens to us once in a while. And so I was there and I got to see her perform. And then I, I watched uh, Guy Davis perform and, and uh, Charlie Musselwhite, I think. Wow. Might have been, it might have been that year or the year after. Anyway, mm-hmm. I think it was that year. But anyway, it's all this stuff. And I had my Bubba Hotep t-shirt on, on and Guy Davis comes to me and he says, I loved my dad in that. And I went, What? I realize that's his son. His son was the blues guitarist. Oh, and he says, oh, I got to get a picture for Mama. So he called and got a picture. Oh. And I thought, Ruby D. Yeah. This is, yeah. You know, that's amazing. And, and, and those things, because Ruby D also, like Ozzy, was deeply involved in the civil rights Absolutely. Uh, movement and all that. So these were kind of heroes of mine. One of the greatest honors of my life, I'm working with Ossie Davis and Ruby D together uh, as they weren't a couple in it. But yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I had cast someone else who got sick and died and we replaced him with Ossie because we didn't want to go the obvious route of yeah. putting them together. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. But they're both so magnificent and they were both so amazing to work with and learn from and oh, and asking for input and and mm. just really really wonderful human oh, beings as well as <laughs> as great 
actors that you could possibly hope to work with. Well, know? and Ozzy said to me once, he says, I, I was thinking about changing a line. I said, oh, I didn't write the script. He said, ask Don. He said, but he went ahead and just told me. I forget what it was. It was something simple. And, and you know, had I written a script, I'd do whatever the hell you want. what I would yeah, tell my answer. Exactly. But because I know he, you know, he knew. But it was a, it was one word. And and I, and he would also say arsehole. Oh, the arsehole! <laughs> yeah, where he came with that, God knows. Yeah. But we loved it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he was uh, just an amazing. One time he came up to me, and I can't do an impression like Joe does of Aussie. <laughs> but he, you know, he said, you know. I've met a lot of presidents, but I just never thought I'd ever be asked to play yeah. President JFK. <laughs> he knew Elvis, too. He had yeah. met Elvis. He had met... Wow. Uh, oh, I never talked with him about yeah, that. Yeah, I think what that's right. I believe that's what Bruce really? told me, so wow. I'm, I'm going on, on that. It would not be surprising. No, no, I'm pretty yeah. sure he probably yeah. did. Yeah. That w- it wouldn't surprise me at all. But it was, a, it was a fascinating place where it was shot, too, because it was an old veteran's home or something? Or? Yeah, it was a rehabilitation that's hospital. Right. It was called Rancho Los Amigos. Okay. Yeah, and it was it was spooky. Yeah, you know, and it had the and of course was that the, shot here. Yeah, or, yeah, and yeah, down in Downey yeah. is where. It but was. there was a house across from it that was when you when you see the exterior, you know, the exterior mm-hmm. shots yeah. that, and the interior was kind of across the street. Yeah, we had it and, all and, right uh, on this one property. Right, and great. then down the street is Nacogdoches, <laughs> and the only <laughs> thing right. funny about that is when they would show it, they would show. Uh, say Nacogdoches, and I'd be in East Texas, and they'd have a car driving there's mountains in the background. Everybody break out laughing every yeah. time because obviously that. But in a way, it kind of added to this kind of like surreal element that was part of that picture, you know. And and what what I was scared is that it would not work. And when I got there, you 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 showed me uh, a daily uh, something yeah. that you had shot. And as soon as I saw it, I went, okay. Yeah, because what it is is the actors played it straight. Even right. though Bruce is funny, he he plays it straight, and and you really feel for the guy. But there's exactly. quite a bit of pathos yeah. in this, oh, story. and in yeah. a lot of your work. I mean, there's a lot of con- confronting life and death in the work. Of right. Joe well, yeah. Don got it. The actors got it, uh, and the atmosphere of the set highly contributed. To the moodiness, not not just the the kind of creepiness that you wanted for for um, the mummy, right? You know, yeah, who, who, as you said, really is the least important part of it. But uh, the the he's the, the set, MacGuffin, yeah, exactly the MacGuffin. Yeah, yeah, it's a reason to have a, a story. But there there's these things. It's like when Elvis picks up the phone and calls. Ossie in his room, and he ha- and Ossie has like a red phone, like like the the hotline. The hot- right. yeah, we, yes. we all grew up with the hotline. <laughs> the hotline, yeah. <laughs> and he, you know, ask not what your rest home can do for you. And, and then uh, Ossie, and that's Bruce says that as yeah as Elvis and Ossie says, "Hey, you're stealing some of my best lines." lines. Yeah. <laughs> he was so good. They were both so good with comedy, you know. Yeah, right. And and, and, and uh, we don't think of Don. We don't think of your work as being comedic, particularly until that time. I mean, there's always humor in what no, you no, do. No, that's that's true. I haven't thought of it in that way. Yeah. But outright comedic. This was the first time we'd seen that take shape was there any special homework that you did to that or or did you just find it in joe's yeah the 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 humor was in the story and of course working with bruce campbell i mean you know when you mentioned that uh uh, notion about buster keaton Mm -hmm. i'm thinking about the sequence where uh elvis uh dresses up in his bush jacket and goes on one his one mission where he's going to go scout out the uh, creek down behind the the rest home, and he's in his walker and we have this one extended take 
And I, I think we could only do it a, like twice where he comes down this really steep hill with the walker. <laughs> and, and if you watch that from beginning to end, just the way Bruce plays the comedy in that, uh, it's, it's, it's so not so. a scene that people ever really talk about. But, you know, being in the editing room and also because just technologically, I think we were shooting with some short ends and that particular shot. The negative was a bit fried, so in color correction was always, oh, you know, always trying to get it so it, yeah, on the edge. Yeah, and so we'd watch it again and again, and just watching the evolution of that, it had a Keaton esque feel yeah. to how yeah. he did. He it. reminds me of of him in yeah. in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a little broader. Well, yeah. of, of course. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. Keaton was you know stone faced. Keaton was so. I'm, I'm mainly yeah. referring to the body control right. and the right. movement and the humor, where it looks like the person has completely lost control, but they haven't. No. They're really controlling it to they, they're 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 giving you that impression. Yeah. Well, what did you what feelings did you have going into this? You'd you'd been going through things. Well, the first time I heard about you as a writer was from the drive in, which was an mm-hmm. iconic uh, novel that Joe had written uh, early 80s, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Everybody wanted to make, to make it. a film out of it. Yeah. I, I can't get him off the dime. Everybody, well, we, including make, Paul Salmon, should, was going to produce yeah. it. You should tell what the story is in the drive-in. Those Joe basic, should tell. Okay. Well, yeah, it's the idea that uh, there's a small town where people don't have a lot to do, but they go to this drive-in that's one of the biggest in the world. And it, it was based on a real drive-in. But they go there, and it has six screens. And the screens show on, this, on, a, on the weekends, they show nothing but horror films. And so it's called the Orbit Drive-In, and you have this long line of people going in. You can hear all the music from their cars. You got, you know, you may have Sleepy LaBeef. You may have the Blood Farmers. You may have, you know, you you name it. Different kinds of music is rattling about, and they drive inside, and they're all excited, and people are doing barbecue, and stuff, which they really did, you know. They're nearly blowing their damn cars up out there. And so then the movies start, and a giant comet appears in the sky but it gets closer and closer and then it smiles it has teeth and then it goes away and when it's gone the drive-in is encased in a sort of black acidic goo and nobody can leave and so uh we we're following all this through the eyes of one of the main characters who does this in first person but essentially they don't have they start running out of food and so the concession stand, they start eating the candies and stuff, and that's all they got. People are getting hypoglycemic, and it's getting strange, and, and, and people try to go out, and the goo eats you. you know. So it, it's, it's not a good thing. And then just when it couldn't think it could get worse, uh, the, the, the two friends, uh, uh, a, a guy who's a real fan of horror makeup and a, and a kind of a motorcycle guy, he's carrying him on his shoulders while they walk up to the concession stand and they're hit by a weird freakish piece of lightning that comes out of the sky and welds them. And the guy was wearing a popcorn uh, <clears throat> bucket bucket on his head. And when he did, it fuses him. And then it changes him, and he becomes this this monster called the Popcorn King, who becomes their religion inside the the drive-in. And then it all just, hail the popcorn. Yeah, and then it gets weird after yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, after. <laughs> so, but this was talked about so many times. Every year, I'd hear, "Oh, they're going to make the drive-in." You'll hear it every year now. Did you develop a, a sense of cynicism about adaptation? At I'm, that time? I'm always cynical about film. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I love it, and uh, I've had things made. I've been more fortunate than many, yeah. but um, 
I'm always cynical about it because it has so many factors to get it made. Mm-hmm. You can't just say, I've got this great director, Don Coscarelli. I've got this good story, or you hope, or I've got this actor. There, there are so many factors that have nothing at all to do with the film. Right. They have to do with who's got the money now, who's hot now, who's connected to who, what they want. Or, and you always have the people, I have my own vision. <laughs> well, fuck your vision. <laughs> yes. And, and uh, I, I want them to have their own vision that, that you know, also captures the vision that I had. Right. And I've always thought that the best adaptations were people who actually tried to capture what was written you know what's the point otherwise i mean having yeah, done a lot no of that why would you go to the effort and the legal just write your own yeah you yeah. could just come yeah. up with your own story you know and so anyway the, they when in in film you you have that a lot but that said i i constantly hear people say well you know you can't do the book or you can't do the story and i they always say that to me like i have well you mean you can't literally put it on (laughs) but i know that but i do think a lot of times what that is is an excuse to find a way to not have to worry about what was originally right right and and don did two of my pieces and both of them i thought and i know there things were added there were certain but i never felt like oh that's not my story well, let's get into that, because the other time you you guys worked together was on my show, Masters of Horror. And it That's was back when you were young. Yeah. Yes. Way back. <laughs> All then. of us. Yeah. Uh, but it was such a potent combination that we decided to debut the show with that episode. It was our premiere episode. This is Incident on and Off a Mountain Road. So tell me how, Don, what led you to choose that? When we said, we came to you and said... Listening to Joe talk about the difficulties in movies, it also brings me around, and I didn't hear your introduction, but I do need to plug my new memoir that's coming out called True Indie. True Indie, Uh, it's a great autobiography. Which has a lot of elements about how one gets a movie made yeah. and from the nuts and bolts from the indie part of thing but incident on a, off the mountain road interesting story was that i don't know if joe remembers but i when i first uh optioned bubba hotep i also optioned his story right. yeah, incident because for me when i read this story and it's a it's a great very simple story about a woman who's out in at night driving and she her car, she's in a little bit of a crash, and then she wakes up, and she ends up fighting to the death with this terrible serial killer. And Moonface. It, and it's a very <laughs> traditional, what used to be called damsel in distress, which mm-hmm. I don't think we're, you know, with the Me Too movement, it's <laughs> yeah. going away. But this, 10 years ago, or 20 years ago when Joe wrote it, it, it turns girl. the whole yeah. thing on its ear. And mm-hmm. I think that there was, a, there were, when I read it, you know, because I came from a family of feminists, my mother yeah. and my uh, my sister, and I read it and I go, yeah. wow, this is a horror feminist story. Yes. I got to see if I could, you know, because it, it's hard to, you know, especially in in the film genre, the way that, you know, the, the, the slashers, just for years, there's most of them are so damn misogynistic. Right. And we go and watch them and kind of go, ooh, should we, should we be watching movies right, like this where right. you just, you know. 85 well, minutes of titillation of yeah, five minutes. Yeah, women have sex and then are, then are yeah. bloodily yeah. Bru- brutalized. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, Joe's story had a, had a twist and was so cool. And so at that time, I read them both and, and, uh, but, and optioned them. But the problem was uh, I couldn't get anybody to fund that story. And mm-hmm. I was, you know, casting about like, how can I get to a major actress to read this thing and see that? And then I'm thinking, 
Oh, moon face with the steel teeth. It's just not <laughs> right. going to, you know, I well, couldn't that, get you know, The for... problem is just, I'm not going to interrupt you just yeah. briefly, is that when you tell these log lines, they seem like something you've seen before, but they aren't. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, right. And I, and I think it's that, all in the handling. It's all yeah. in the characters, and it's all in the twists and turns. Yeah, absolutely you know? true. And I think that's why Joe and I like working together, because we're like-minded souls in that way, which is that it's okay to, and I think both of us, have, well, Joe's pushed out of it a little bit out of the genre, not so much with me, but the thing is, is that while working in the genre, we're trying to look for ways of making something a little different and a little interesting. And so that's kind of what – Or a lot. The, the yes. path, or a lot. But in any case, so um, I had made Bubba Hotep and things had gone great and all of that. And then one day I get this phone call from Mick and he uh, – well, I guess I better back it up even further – before, as I was making Bubba Hotep, I got a call from Mick, and he says, I'm going to have a dinner with some of my good friends, and they're all directors. Would you like to come? And I said, oh, this would be great. And he had this dinner and invited all these horror legends from uh, Stuart Gordon to oh, Larry wow. Cohen to John Carpenter to Toby Hooper, John Landis. Who else am I missing? Bill, Bill Malone. Malone. Bill Malone. <laughs> Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo del Toro was there. And, this was uh, our very first master's dinner. Yes. And there it's, were 12 of us. And it's uh, and we like we casually throw around this master's of horror and everybody probably thinks, oh, God, those guys have their heads stuck up their ass calling them that. <laughs> it's but a it joke. It, it was a joke. It all came out of a joke because Guillermo was there and everybody was laughing. We were having a, it was a, I'll have to diverge a little. It was a really great evening because you, you make, meet all these like-minded filmmakers and the last thing they want to talk about is themselves. All they want to talk about is your movie. They're all horror fans. Yeah. And, and the best part about it is, is that at the end of the night, we had so much fun that Mick's counting up the money when everybody cut their thing. He had like a hundred bucks. Everybody kicked in extra money. They had so much fun. <laughs> and then we made Mick uh, said he could keep it for the next dinner. <laughs> I made an extra hundred bucks off Yay! that. I'm going to do this more often. <laughs> but the, the, the name came from the fact that we were being quite raucous, making a lot of noise and laughing and having a, a great time. And there was this a group of four people that they were celebrating a birthday in the restaurant next to us. And I don't know if they were enjoying our laughter as much as that. But anyway, the woman's birthday cake arrived and uh, Guillermo del Toro jumps to his feet and he like felicitously says, um, please accept our best Birthday wishes from the Masters of Horror. Yeah, happy birthday. And that's where the name came from. But at any rate, so Mick decided to monetize the Masters of Horror, and he had this well, plan. Well, I don't want to put Well, okay, I'm not, that's, that's being crass, but in a good way, yeah, yeah. he had a plan to uh, basically put together a deal to make 13 one-hour movies for yeah. for the Showtime yeah. Network. And uh, so he came around to all of his friends, and he came to me, and he said, so, and you can do anything you want. And like, I'm thinking, hmm, what do I have? And I'm like, dick, dick, dick. And Wait, what? I paid for that thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I had actually, it had actually gone back to you. And I went, and I went, click. Incident on and off a mountain road. God, what a nice job you did on that too. And I and I know it. You were frustrated because you were, you were having to work fast and yeah. and whatever. And, and Brie Turner, gosh, she was so yeah. The cast so was excellent. She and Ethan Embry. Yes, Ethan, they were so good. John DeSantis is the and big Angus. guy. Uh-huh. Angus Scrim had a nice yes. little role. Yeah. And uh, and we got to give some credit to uh, Stephen Romano who yeah. came yeah. on and helped me with the screenplay. Uh, with put the screenplay with together. Yeah. So. 
But, uh, you know, I know this was a tough one for you because working all your life as an independent, having a union crew and a start and stop and needing to be out on certain hours and things like that. It it was it was a dream on any level. You know, I had a little problem with one crew member and that was it. Yeah. But but everything else is a level, dream now, Don. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, the Canadian the Canadian crews could. I mean, well, what the, it's amazing the, how they having the the. I was on the set and yeah. watching you. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Yeah, but having all of the resources available that that kind of operation allowed us to have was yeah. pretty astounding. Because on one stage you're shooting there, and on the other stage we're prepping the next show, or we're out on location doing a location, which stand. also caused problems for the directors because then. Nick, as a as a good executive producer, would come in and he go, you know, uh, Dario Argento is filming his episode and his is really bloody and like really the action's good and all that kind of. Oh, sheesh. I don't want to. I don't want to be the slacker in the bunch. Well, let me say again, we scheduled your show as the premiere show for a reason. It was yeah. not the first one shot, but it was the first one here. Well, well, I, I saw Dario Argento. I had dinner with him in Italy. Ah, was, you're and, kidding? Uh, no. Well, tell uh, us everything. I, some, I, it was he didn't speak perfect English or anything, yeah. but yeah. he was funny as hell. Yes, we, we sat yeah. by turn. He was, and what we talked about about that, and he remembered your episode, yes. you uh-huh. know. And but when we talked about the one he had done and all that, but he had had a really good time on uh, Masters of Horror. He did, yeah. and he did yeah. two of them. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. And, and he said that he and he wanted more of them. You know, and yeah, I did too. But he was so sweet because I came and he went. You are famous. I went, oh, Dario, for God's <laughs> sake. You know, humility is enough, you know. But we had a, we had a great, great dinner, and uh, me, Karen, my wife, and, mm-hmm. and him, and uh, a bunch of other people that were in, and somebody else I think had, had a, that was there that had something to do with it. I'm not uh, sure now. Okay. It's been so long ago. But what a, what a, what a cool guy. What a nice, nice guy. Yeah. Another favorite memory of mine was after we made the show, I was, uh, got kindly invited to join some other of the directors in, uh, Torino, Italy. Yes. For the film festival where we amazing. screened yeah. and to walk through the streets of Turin in, uh, at night with Mick. Uh, Joe Dante, John Landis, but Dario Argento's like a rock star in Italy. Oh, yeah. He shoots this, all of his movies in, in Torino. Uh, yes, yeah. Yeah. I love was, Torino. Yeah, you know what's weird is that I'm I'm really well known in Italy. I'm like that's people recognize me on the street for a novelist. That's that. pretty amazing. Yeah, for yeah. for a writer. But uh, it, it's it's so much fun. Torino is this cool city that's very artistic. It's very. Um, uh, it's kind of got a moodier feel than a lot of other uh, of mm-hmm. Italy. It's more. It's got some uh, influences of France and different mm-hmm. things like that. But they have uh, a, a film festival there every year. I got to be a judge one year. Winners wow. by one. Wow, nice. Yeah, we were there and, two years in a row with. Yeah, them. and then they have the great film museum there. Oh, it's. Oh, it's. I'm, I'm, I'm really yeah. pimping for Tor- uh, Torino because it's my favorite <laughs> city in Italy. It's and I go there a lot, and uh, Casey, some of my Italian friends or fans are. Or listen, I want them to know how much I appreciate how <laughs> plus, kind they Plus, if you go in October, it's truffle season. That's true. And true. I developed the taste. Oh. <laughs> well, okay. and I can't afford them here, no, unfortunately. <laughs> that's true. Those are, those are special. Well, there's been a kind of a transition in the direction of your work, Joe. Mm. Um, 
you were first very well known for your horror work. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of transitioned into, well, westerns and crime. Happen Leonard was a series of books and short stories that has been a three-season run on Sundance. So Mm -hmm. uh, was that an intentional transition or just a natural thing that happened to you? Your interests moved in a different direction? I always had interest in that. I, I mean, the very first things I saw were mysteries. Mm-hmm. They were short stories for Mike Shane Mystery Magazine, or novellas, or novelettes is what they called them. Right. And I wrote uh, a few things like that. My first novel, Act of Love, was a crime novel. It was a police procedural. Very dated now, but that got me going. Uh, the Night Runners is a cross between horror and crime. Mm-hmm. So I think that was always there. But if you look at most of my work, and I include Bubba Hotep in this, they're westerns. Interesting. Yeah. Ride the high country. Like we said, you know, he there's was a lot saying, of boots in Bubba Hotel. Well, yeah, yeah but there's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a storyline. It has the showdown and it, it has uh, it, it's like, a, you know, the term Western. So a lot of people, they have the, a, a bad idea because they right. don't really know anything about them. Right. And uh, but but there were certain formats that I like there. Happen Leonard. I, I think of them kind of as Western characters in a modern sense. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and so there's a lot of that influence there. So I think I always had the influence. It's just at that time. I was doing a lot more horror, but I still write horror. I have stuff mm-hmm. coming out now in, in horror. Uh, so uh, I think the interests were always multiple. And I think it's why the, the genre crossing was there so early on is because I was influenced heavily by books and short stories as well as, as films and television shows. And, and, of course, television now is a unique place to work if you can get in because it's, it's more novelistic. It's more character-driven because it has more room. And the production values have met and exceeded feature films in a lot of cases. And that was not the case before. And digital filmmaking has a lot to do with that. Um, You did some screenwriting early on doing animation. That's right. Doing superheroes and things like that. Batman the Animated Series and one Superman the Animated Series. Some of the greatest fun I ever had. And you know what is really nice is I'll meet people that are like, I don't know, in their 30s, like my son's age and and, uh, my daughter, and they'll come up and go, you wrote did you write that read my lips yeah oh my god and you know so and for some for them that was the, their entry into my work a lot of times or, or the comics you know i did jonah hex comics right, and right. i did conan comics I had lone ranger all those different things but you had comic people come to the work you had animation fans come to the work and that's a cross genre there in a way so i've been very fortunate because i liked all these different genres that i have been able to be new several times Instead right. of being new once. Well, it's uh, have you intentionally not pursued the screenwriting aspect and leave it to Actually, the Actually, you know, or? I did a, a thing called Son of Batman. I did an animated film. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote a script for Happen Leonard. And I've sold – I wrote a script that uh, Ridley Scott got for The Big Blow. Oh, and wow. for a while, they were going to shoot that. And then – as things changed there, it got lost, and then mm-hmm. uh, they were going to shoot one by Orrin Moverman. And then they came back, and they were going to shoot my script because uh, uh, they had a director that I, I liked and I thought would be interesting to do it, but they were not able to make a deal. That's why I won't mention his name because I don't okay. make a deal. Mm-hmm. Well, now they've got the script by Moverman again, and they've got a director in line. They've announced they're going to do it, but they announced they're going to do it every three years. Yes. But I got, you know. Sort of like the drive-in. Well, yeah. And, you know, one time I remember when uh, they wanted to re-option it, and I wasn't crazy about them re-optioning it because they'd had it a long time. And I went to, my wife and I went to 
Paris for some reason. I don't know, some kind of a thing. And so when we came back, I had no more landed than my agent at that time. It's not my current agent. Called and said, well, we sold that to Ridley Scott. We sold the – I said, man, I told you I didn't want an option. He said, no, no, we stole, sold it. And I said, how much? And he told me, I went, ooh. <laughs> yeah, that was a good move. Okay. But they had something in the contract after it had been optioned enough. Because my option didn't go to the back end. It was just free money. Mm, and I think right. one day they looked and they said, you know, we've been doing this a long time. Mm-hmm. And David Lynch had it before that. I had the wow. same deal with him. Wow. So it's still not made. And yet. But you're making good. I, well, I, I did. It <laughs> cha- right, you know, at that moment in time, it changed yeah. things for me because wow. several other things were coming. But I'm just saying that's how film is. A lot of times you think somebody isn't working in it, and they are. They are. You know, my but... son and I have a script out with uh, uh, for a a television pilot. My daughter and I are trying to, to are working in, in film things. So, I mean, you, you do it, and occasionally something actually happens. Right, but right. There's people I know have never sold, never sold a, I mean, they've sold a script, never had one filmed yep. that are actually quite wealthy. Right, do, living quite so many, well yeah, on quite being well. paid to write without getting produced. Right, That's true. Speaking of writing, for someone who struggles with the writing process, your book, True Indie, it felt like it just flowed out of you. Uh, this is a really great autobiography from someone who's worked in the trenches. Your career, Don, has been almost exclusively independent film. And it's incredibly honest and incredibly inspiring and heartbreaking at the same time. So tell me about the process of, of deciding to put it all in a book and the process of doing it and getting it out there. Uh, look, it, uh, it's, it's hard to put, put my finger on one reason that caused this to happen other than uh, I do know that I've been through a lot of interesting stories and I'm always, always meeting aspiring filmmakers and, you know, l- looking for their path into the business. And, they, you know, they ask me for advice about things. And I'm always thinking, you know, like I'm the last person to give you advice. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was a, a confluence of But who of better events. with this long list of things yeah. that you've done entirely on your own? Well, you know, one, one part of it was nice. And, uh, you know, I actually, in a way, Joe, I recommend it to you if you ever think about writing a memoir because it gives you a chance to go back and look at some of the eras that you've passed and sometimes you know i tend to compartmentalize and put things away you know and not especially failures you know and Mm -hmm. and and force you to go through and address some of them and you know one of my biggest failures in my mind you know was my very first movie Mm -hmm. you know because i made this film it started as a student project and ended up uh, Universal Studios purchased it, and my. And you were how old? Uh, well, when they well, bought it, I bought, when I when they <laughs> bought it, I was nineteen years old. Exactly. And my neighborhood kind of- friend and I, Craig Mitchell, was his name. We co-directed this movie, and we had an office on the lot at Universal Pictures with Universal Studios. And what's more interesting, and as I tell it in the book, I, I'd forgotten what we had was at that time. We had access to the president of the studio because he was the one who had originally seen the movie and bought it, brought us to the studio Tell to us the finish name of the movie. it. And then we went, oh, the name of the movie? Jim the World's Greatest. Mm. And good luck finding it because it never came out on video or VHS or DVD. Uh, still lost in the vaults. But, um, and I think it was a pretty decent movie as a drama. You know, as a, and it starred Angus Scrim. Reggie Bannister was in it, so early, you know, was collaborators. Was he going by Angus that early, or no, was he, he went still by his, Rory Guy? Yeah, he went by Lawrence Guy, actually. Lawrence He's guy. a man of multiple names. Right, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but imagine, Mick, 
being 19 years old, and we could go up, get an elevator at the what was then called the Black Tower at Universal. Right. I think it, it's still called the Black Tower. And yeah. we could ride up to the 15th floor, and the, the gentleman's name was Sid Scheinberg, and go right up to his secretary. He goes, hey, you sit in. We want to ask him about something. <laughs> we would have like a new idea. You know, and he would wave us in, and we'd tell him. Because, you know, like it's interesting because – there's a culture of fear at the studio there at that time. And mm-hmm. we were like these wild card kids that had access to them. Of course, my career has continued. I've never had access like that again. <laughs> yeah. I've never had an office on a studio lot yeah. since that time. Yeah. But going back and looking at it, I, I saw so many interesting stories about that. And I, and I st- just started to write it. But I think part of it, uh, interesting is, you know, Baba Hotep played a, a part in this, not only the fact that I made the movie and I could tell the stories about it, but the editor, who uh, really pursued me to do this had made his bone. Well, I don't know. He wouldn't exactly made his bone. He had excellent success um, publishing Bruce Campbell's autobiography. Oh, yeah. And so that was the connection. And he thought, well, uh, you, you know, I've had success with Bruce. And I kept telling him, look, I'm I'm not going to sell the numbers that Bruce sells because we yes, we've both seen the, camera, the uh, not in front of the, the camera, lines yeah. that Bruce has oh, in his oh, stuff. Yeah. But in any case, I think it was an interesting uh, point of, uh, you know, self-reflection to go through these different phases in my life and tell, you know, basically telling the story of my uh, various film exploits. And uh, yet at the same time, try to make it a uh, handbook on indie film, filmmaking, distribution, you know, how to working, struggling to find funding to get your films made, dealing with actors, you know, writing. There's so many different aspects of it. I think that if if nowhere else, you know, somebody who's, you know, 20 years old and wants to get in the movie business would be an interesting book for them to read. Yeah. Uh, when's this coming out? Uh, October 2nd. Okay. And why the title? True indeed. True indeed. Life and, and death in filmmaking. <laughs> well, and that's something that should be said about Baba Hotep. It could only have been an independent film. Oh, the yeah. ideas are are so wild and imaginative, and yet it's set on such solid ground yeah. and with these human performances. Yeah. But it's totally independent. Absolutely true. Because it's also yeah. really fucking weird. Yeah. <laughs> but nobody would have made it. But I think that probably to both uh, Joe and my uh, everlasting gratitude was the the real breakthrough in my mind and success was the fact that the movie worked with younger audiences. Because yes. when I was going out to try to get funding – People would say, oh, well, who's going to want to sit for two hours with old codgers in a rest home? You know, come on, you got to put a you long know, scenes you, in bed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can you put a hunky guy in there like as an orderly? And I'm thinking, no, there's no role for them. And the thing was, is from our very first screenings, there would be the Joe Lansdale fans. There'd be the black T-shirt, Evil Dead and Phantasm fans like age 16 to 30. We hit the sweet spot. And they yeah. but they they got the storyline about the, the our culture's treatment of the elderly, you know, about how we warehouse people and, and, and all these people with, you know, that are, had such meaningful, rich lives we just dismiss. And this worked with young people. And what it proved is that I think, and I don't, this is no great surprise, but the powers that be that make the movies tend to underestimate their own. Well, audiences. and you know, the other thing too is, is that 
I think Bruce's performance is the best he ever gave, and I think that that was a really award-winning performance. And I wished he had gotten more attention for that. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I was going to say, although that's we that you often hear it's called a cult movie or, mm-hmm. or a B movie, it's made a transition in the last few years to being something else. Respectable. Respectable. Yeah, Who would have ever yeah, thought that? I'll take that word. Yeah. You know? But it's true. And it really probably got you more good reviews than you'd had up until that time in your career. It was, it was, you know, generally well-reviewed, no question yeah. about it. And, and, you know, I've also talked to people who saw it when they were younger that didn't get it. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it wasn't a kick-ass Bruce Campbell in the way they thought of it. And then some of them said, you know, and I saw that thing again, he said, I, I missed the boat. I said, no, you were just too young. Yeah. You know, <laughs> exactly. because then when they saw it the next time, you know, and, and Don and I were younger, obviously, then. But we were starting to have people we knew and starting to think about, you know, this this is a future that you have to look at because it's Absolutely. very likely. Yeah. And it's a real horror story. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about, you know, the, ending your days in one of those old folks home, just yep. neglected. Yeah. And, you know, all in that original short story, that scene with uh, where Elvis is laying there, you know, feeling sorry for himself, everything's so bad. And then he, this, this, this young woman comes in and she's, she's going through the, his roommate had died yeah. and she's going through his things and there, there's this purple heart metal and she's just throwing it in the trash and these photos, <laughs> photos of him as a young man you know like uh what was a swinging dick till the yeah. end of time <laughs> just tossing it in the trash right. and it's just uh, right. so touching and yeah. meaningful yeah it's powerful because i'd seen things somewhat like that when i was there yeah. you know when, when i was with my mother because i would go there and sit and then my brother would go and and uh, she did get better but she never left that home mm. you yeah. know and it's uh you, you start looking around and, and it's the sort of thing that makes you go yeah you know, it doesn't matter how famous you are, how much money you got. Yeah. You know, it does, nothing matters. And yeah. in the end, you you need people there that, that matter to you. Exactly. Well, we can't wrap this up without addressing Baba Nosferatu uh, and the possibility. <laughs> doesn't look good. It does not look promising. Not from a film point of view. But, uh, yeah, we, you know, just to fill everybody in is for a couple of years there. And, and, I, and I'm going to have to say it for the first time here. The reason I never did that your kind took up you up on your kind offer of season two of Masters of Horror <laughs> was because I thought that I was going to make Bubba Nosferatu and it didn't happen. And it was, uh, you had a lot of good stuff, you know, there. It could have been a, I think, a, a, a wonderful movie in some respects. Had the two of you worked on ideas for that? Not so much. No, I did was, write a, a prequel to it called Bubba and the Cosmic Bloodsuckers. Not a screenplay. Well, yeah, I wanted to go uh, to a novel. Yeah. And, and then, it, I, then it's a comic book series right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. No, Joe has carried the, you know, the torch, continued the torch with a whole line of new, uh, uh, with a novel and a, a comic book series with yeah. a lot mm-hmm. of interesting, really transgressively strange vampires yeah, really, in that. Really? From Joe Lansdale? Uh, <laughs> well, and you know, the thing is, is that it got to the point to where, that we were talking about a prequel at one point. It got to the point where I don't think Bruce could play the younger Elvis anymore convincingly. <laughs> right. I mean, you know. I'd right. never tell him that. Well, but not, if you I mean, not when he first started talking about it, it was perfect. But I mean, now, I'm talking about now, yeah. I, I don't. I think it'd be very, very hard for him to go back and play uh, a guy that's in his late 30s or, or so on. That'd yeah. be difficult for sure. anybody because, yeah, you know, Bruce is older. That's it. Yeah. But if we, we could have continued with uh, the older Elvis uh, quite easily because, as, as uh, Bruce said, nobody can d- tell him that he doesn't look like the older Elvis. Because right. who knows? Yeah, who knows? Yeah. So was that tag at the end of Bubba Hotep a joke or a promise? 
Well, at the first, when I first put it down in the script, I mean, it was, I had loved the way that the 007 movies always ended with a promise of the uh-huh, next 007. Right, right. And the movie was so down with what happened with Elvis, you know, at, by the creek bed and, you know, all is well and, you know, the tears are welling. I thought, well, we're going to have to leave the audience with a little hope, you know. Right, so I right. decided to put that in at the end. And I remember standing there with Joe and Bruce at Cine Vegas at our very first right. screening. Uh, we were, they brought us up to the front. We were ready to go on as the credits are running and that came up and the whole audience just goes, ah! I thought it was a joke. Yeah. Yeah, People responded But you could see like they really wanted it. And so, hey, you'll have to read True Indie. Yeah. It tells the whole story. One thing I really liked about that film I loved was that it had this big opening like it was going to be Ben-Hur. Right. (laughs) And and I just loved that. You know, I think it kind of ended that way. It ain't (laughs) Ben-Hur. It ain't Ben-Hur. And then we had that uh, archival footage Footage, of the the German archaeologist, which I saw recently on a uh, an archaeological show I was watching. Oh, they probably, yeah. yeah they used the same stuff. They, well, yeah. It, yeah, it was a real deal. And he, <laughs> yeah. it was there. Uh, and I just thought that was so, you know, it was giant Ben Hur, then that, yeah. and then the rest home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joe Lansdale, Don Coscarelli, thank you so much for joining us to hey, celebrate thank you for this having us. wonderful movie that deserves celebration for many years to come. Thanks Nick, for joining our us. Our pleasure. Thanks for having uh, us. Thank great. You. Thank you, guys. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.